Welcome to D-Next, the innovation podcast for Durham Region, and I'm your host, Paul Coides. In this special episode, we talk to Jerry Diaz, president of Unifor, consummate power broker, and social justice advocate for all, with his mind on the future and his eyes on an economy for everyone. Unifor's historic deal with General Motors turned heads, changed hearts, and gave hope for the people of Oshawa, Canada, and maybe even the world. Jerry, thanks for joining us on D Next. It is uh, a big deal for us and an and honor to have you on this series. So thank you. Uh, pleasure is all mine. Are you kidding? It's uh, it's very important that we, you know, we do a lot of local journalism, that we do podcasts within the Durham region. It's an important time in our history. So it's an absolute pleasure for me to be here today. Well, let's just start then with uh, a congratulations to uh, to you and the team on this truly historic deal with GM for Oshawa, Canada, and I would say people around the world in many ways. Um, why is this new deal so important and what does it symbolize? Well, first of all, it symbolizes that you never give up hope. Um, so many people threw in the towel uh, when we started our fight back in 2018 to get GM to reverse their decision. Politicians were saying, look, you're wasting your time, um, you're misleading people, you're creating false hope. And we stuck with it and we persisted and we opened the doors for GM and we kept the conversation going. And the bottom line, it really is about perseverance. So it's a historical moment because if you take a look at how things fell into place, we had the GM announcement in November of 2018 that announced the complete closure of the facilities. Then we had our fight back campaign and then we came to an agreement uh, with General Motors in April of 2019 that was transforming the plant to make aftermarket parts. And But the key piece of our agreement was that we were going to maintain the integrity of the plant. In other words, the ability to build vehicles in the future. And that's why this is so important, is that it really is about you know, us not giving up hope. And frankly, GM approaching it from a, from a, a you know, a intelligent point of view, they didn't throw in the towel either. And when the pandemic hit and it became clear that they needed more inventory, then Osha was all ready and available and our members are ready to go. So certainly a lot of open-mindedness and respect on both sides of the table towards the end for a deal like this. And, but it was a surprise to many of us. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about maybe the days or the hours leading up to making this happen? I mean, what was going on through your head? Well, we saw the opportunity. Uh, we started, we really opened the door with GM in December of 2019 and said, hey, look, we're, if you're looking for a solution uh, for, for, for inventory, we're here. If you need more volume, we're here. And then we started to have just some off the record conversations about, you know, they didn't name any products. Uh, we were just talking concepts. And then when we came to the bargaining table, it was clear uh, that GM had taken our earlier conversation seriously. We had put the bad blood behind us. And so we really started to talk about how are we going to do this? So it really started to come together in the last two, three days before the deadline. They identified 
that they wanted to talk about heavy duty and light duty pickup trucks. Uh, we started talking about, you know, volumes. We started talking about launches. So it really came together. So was it exciting? Yes. Uh, but the bottom line is bargaining, like every other set of negotiations, really comes together at the wire. So we didn't have a deal to reopen Oswa until, frankly, after the strike deadline on the uh, on the 4th. So it really came together in the wee hours of the morning. We came to a tentative agreement at three o'clock. So it was uh, it was a time of, of great hope. It was a time of of uh, nervousness, to be candid with you. But it was also an opportunity that we weren't going to let slip away. So we closed the deal. Not everyone can manage that kind of pressure. I, I think it takes a, a bit of a beyond an iron gut. How how do you deal with that? How do you manage that? There's a, there are a lot of lives, people's lives at stake with a deal like this. It touches a lot of people. Well, if we get to a three shift operation uh, in Oshawa, which I am optimistic could happen as early as July of 2022, you're looking at the better part of 3000 jobs just within the Oshawa complex. But then with the spinoffs, the indirect jobs, you're looking at 10 to one. So when you start talking about the supply base, you talk about the store owners, you talk about everybody that the industry touches, you're looking at a good 30,000 jobs, which is, you know, billions of dollars to the economy. But look, I'm, I'm okay. I'm wired differently than most. I don't get thrown off my game. I deal with uh, pressure every day. My job is, is as such that, you know, we have over 3,000 collective agreements. In any given day, we have two, three collective agreements expiring. So there's always pressure. There's always strikes. There's always disputes. There's always challenges. There's debate with governments. There's pushing about social policy. There's there's all of these balloons in the air. But ultimately, I don't get too wrapped up in, um, in, in any individual issue. I try to keep a level head the best I can. I'm always optimistic and I'm driven. And, and it isn't any more complicated than that. I think I handle stress a lot better than most. So Unifor touches many industry sectors which are um, at risk of transforming for many reasons. And let's talk about one of them, globalization, which may have been some of the issues that were at the core of some of the early discussions with the auto uh, manufacturing sector. I just want to hear your thoughts on globalization and how you see that changing business and more importantly, how do we manage this change? I mean, what are your what are your views on this? Look, the we've been living globalization for decades now, um, so it's nothing new. It really has been a real challenge on working class people. It really is about corporations going to the lowest common denominator. It was about auto jobs migrating from Canada and the United States to Mexico. That's why when NAFTA was signed by the Conservative government under Brian Mulroney, you know they had talked about driving up the standard of living for Mexican workers. That was a straight lie. It was really about putting pressure on wages in Canada and the United States. So we saw over the last several decades, the migration of our jobs, good paying manufacturing jobs, uh, to the low cost uh, suppliers, low cost nations. So it really was about legalized exploitation. But the interesting piece of the pandemic is it showed a lot of developed nations how unprepared we were. So if you look at Canada, and I'll just use us as the example, we were completely unprepared to take care of the basic security of our citizens. We depended on China, the United States, we depended on a variety of different nations 
to provide us with the most basic personal protective equipment. We were completely flat-footed. We lost lives as a result of it. So all of a sudden now you start to think, hold on here. Was this whole desire to outsource to the cheapest supplier, was it a great strategy? No, all of a sudden you're seeing major corporations uh, that are not able to resume full production. Why? Because they outsource so many commodities in key, uh, in key ingredients to their manufacturing process overseas. So all of a sudden people are saying, hey, we may have saved a, a nickel, but it just cost us a dollar. So all of a sudden there's this different mindset. Uh, about what is required, what is necessary. And look, there's a whole global discussion on Build Back Better and we're having that conversation in a meaningful way here in Canada. What does the economy look like after the pandemic? What are the key jobs? What are the governments going to invest in? What does our society look like? Are we going to be a stronger society without good, a good, strong manufacturing footprint? And the answer is no. And people realize that today. And that's why I think you're seeing both the federal and provincial government here in Ontario saying, look, if we're talking about the greening of the economy and we're talking about the greening of the auto sector, we're in. Even Oshawa, which isn't about a green platform, but it's about reopening a community, they're saying, look, we're in. Because they realize that in order for us to hit the ground running after the pandemic, we need jobs and we need good paying jobs. And the auto industry, there's no question, is on the leading edge of new technology. And if you want to be in the game, then you have to play uh, in that type of an arena. And that's why I'm enthusiastic about how things are unfolding. Well, I think the pandemic, to your point, has shone a light on many things, perhaps flaws in the system or some assumptions that we had about the apparatus. Do you think that it's also raised our social consciousness a little bit or our community uh, cohesion uh, to your point that there are other competing things that go on not just profit margins uh, but other things that when uh, a big crisis like this hits uh, you know having a lot of money in a small amount of hands obviously d doesn't help us you know it's interesting because in the united states they've always had this buy america philosophy which has hurt us, but it's in many different areas. But it was also a philosophy where they said, look, we need to take care of the economics at home. So all of a sudden here in Canada, we're going, hey, as much as we may have been critical of uh, the Buy America philosophy, what's wrong with Canada as a nation using our procurement, using the strength of government to create jobs here? You know, when we're needing transit, why would we go to a German company based in California when we have the mechanisms here in Canada to, you know, to supply the necessities that we require. So there's so many different things that, you know, we can be doing internally that to save a nickel, we're going overseas. So this whole trade philosophy is we're going to, you know, save the taxpayers $10, uh, but lose thousands of jobs. Canadians are waking up and saying, hey, hey hold on a minute. Okay, I might be retirement age. I'm 62 years old. I'm, I'm going to be retiring in a couple of years. But people are saying, hey, hold on here. What about my kids? Hold on here. I'm, I'm a grandparent now. What about my grandchildren? What type of jobs are they going to have? Not everybody's going to be a government employee. Not everybody's going to be a doctor. Not everybody's going to be a dentist. Um, not everybody's going to work, you know, on Bay Street. People aren't going to be trading stocks. People need jobs. People are going to need manufacturing jobs. So I think the mentality has changed today, and I think the pandemic has really brought Canadians together as a nation 
because I think we're looking at things differently. The preoccupation today isn't about how we save a nickel. The preoccupation today is about how do we flourish as a society. And that's only as a result of these types of discussions and when we really think about others, not just ourselves. As the world economies adjust to new tech, AI, automation, a kind of dehumanization of the manufacturing process, how does this, in your opinion, impact the role of unions in the future? More or less relevant? More relevant. First of all, we'll, we've been dealing with automation uh, for decades. I mean, think about the assembly line introduced by Henry Ford. So when you start talking about robotics, you start talking about changing work environments. It's not something that's just been evolving over the last 10, 15 years. It's been happening, you know, for for probably better better part of 75, 80 years. So, but with it is all kinds of other challenges. First of all, there's training. Second of all, there's the whole issue of the wear and tear on the body. Um, it's the repetitive strain. It really is about making sure that workers have the tools in which to adapt to technology. Um, I'm not afraid of technology, by the way. Uh, look, does it dehumanize? Yes, so we need to deal with that. We need to make sure that people don't become robots themselves, you know, through, you know, the same repetitive motion day after day after day after. So we need to find a way to ensure that there's job rotations, that there's a whole host of, of other things. So we need to make sure above all that the workplace is safe. But also I'm more concerned about companies that don't invest than companies that do invest because look, whether we like globalization or not, it's not gonna end tomorrow. So we're gonna have to compete on the, on the, on the open market. It sounds like a terrible thing to say, but it's the reality that we live in. And that happens uh, when we have workplaces that have gotten a type of investment in which to compete. So it's a double-edged sword. So um, does automation replace jobs? Yes. Um, if you don't invest, will you have jobs? Flip the coin. So it really is a balancing act. But the key thing is, is A, we need to make sure that we're trained to deal with the introduction of new technology. B, we need to make sure that the jobs that are created as a result of that, which is maintenance of the robotics and the machinery, that workers are trained to do that. Uh, we need to make sure that workers are taken care of that are displaced as a result of introductions of new technology. But above all, we need to make sure that workers are brought along with the, with the changes in the work environment. That's the keys. Okay, let's, let's talk local. Uh, everyone's favorite new topic. You know, Durham is evolving. Uh, in Oshawa, where, where I'm from, uh, historically has had a special place in the economic engine of Canada. Yep. Do you see it being as important in the future, and how do we make that happen? Well, look, you need, you know, you need a diversified um, portfolio, for the lack of a better choice of words. You need a diversified economy. You need different factors. You, like GM, for the longest time, excuse me, was the, you know, was the company town. You know, it was a GM city, and still perceived, and still is to a large extent, a, a GM city. But Durham has also evolved. I mean, it's become an education um, hotbed. It's, you know, you've seen tech companies, you've seen a migration of different industries to the Durham region, which is so critical uh, because you can't just be self-dependent on one industry and one company. So the evolution is important. 
Um, but frankly, the return of GM to Durham certainly doesn't hurt. Uh, what it does is it brings investment back to the community and investment brings other investments. So, um, the, you know, so the return of GM to the Durham region is a win-win situation all the way around. And speaking of which, I believe it was almost two years ago when last I saw you and Sting. You need to tell us the story about Sting and his involvement in the fight. And why was that so important to the mission? Well, Sting was huge. It brought an international flavor to our fight back. And it was actually Sting that reached out to me. Uh, he was performing a, a show at the Elgin Theater called The Last Ship. And it was really about the shipbuilding industry and his community in the UK. Um, and what the, you know, the Thatcher government, what she did to their industry. And so he wrote this play. And so as they're performing here in Toronto, as they're kicking off the performance, he's going back to his uh, suite at night and he's watching the TV and he's watching us uh, launch a campaign fighting against General Motors' decision. And so he had the Mervish, uh, he had uh, um, uh, David Mervish contact me and, and invite me to the play. And so he invited me to the play. And then of course I met with Sting afterwards and we had a one heck of a conversation. Um, I had as many questions for him as he had for me as it related to his industry and what I was going through um, with, uh, with GM in Oshawa. So we really had a good discussion. He wanted to help. So he did, a, so he volunteered uh, his time and that of the cast who are incredible people uh, to give a benefit concert to assist us. And he did in an incredibly, incredibly meaningful way. So him and I keep in touch. I spoke to him a week and a half ago when we got a tentative agreement with with General Motors. I texted him to say, I've got some incredible news. And he called me immediately. He was just about to do a performance. I don't know what type during COVID, but he was in Paris. So he called and he was all excited. And needless to say, I forwarded him a lot of the information about the reopening of Oshawa. And I've been getting texts and calls from uh, from the cast who are predominantly located in in the UK but it's uh they're viewing it as a as a uh, they're, they're celebrating as we are they feel as if they played a role um, it's a, it was a, a story that had a happy ending and the unfortunate reality of things is most stories don't so everybody is engaged and everybody's quite pleased with the results well it was certainly you know a, a special if not magical moment and something a milestone i think that's going to be uh, researched uh, and studied because i think you're right it, it was a huge part of this turnaround that frankly a lot of people didn't think was going to happen uh you know despite best efforts and i think it's amazing what, what a wonderful way to do that but as we look at that and as we look at you know what the involvement of sting because that means that this is uh it's a personal story, but it's also a global yes. story. It's happening around the world. Observation. In your time, with all these changes going on, has corporate culture or leadership uh, points of view at the top changed at all? Is there an evolution in the idea of social justice, um, in your opinion? Yes or no? And why is that important? No. Hasn't changed one iota. The preoccupation is still about uh, return to shareholders. It's about executive compensation. Um, they understand the mechanism to create their wealth is through workers, uh, but have have they somehow, um, you know, created this social conscience? Not a chance. The thinnest book in the world is a book of corporate ethics. 
by far the thinnest book in the world. So when this series is about, and speaking to entrepreneurs, those people who are gonna be building the future of not only our economy, but our communities, our societies, our schools, everything that we do, and everyone I've spoken to talks about the need for entrepreneurs to think differently, to pivot out of the pandemic, all of the above. Given all of that, do you have any special messages to entrepreneurs as they think about these things, as they build new businesses? Does it always have to be an adversarial scenario? Is there a way that people can work together that benefits everyone? Well, there's no question. There ought not to be an adversarial scenario. I mean, we all want the same thing. Uh, we want our members to have jobs. We want Canadians to have jobs. Uh, the way to have jobs is with profitable companies. So, you know, you can't negotiate wage increases with bankrupt companies. So it's not as if the labor movement is, you know, ran by a bunch of Neanderthals that just don't understand. But there has to be a better way of doing things. Like when I say that the thinnest book in the world is the book of corporate ethics, you know, to a large extent, I'm generalizing. But major corporations are all based on return to shareholders and profits, period. Um, smaller companies, entrepreneurs, they can look at things differently. They can create a work environment where people want to come to work. They can recognize the needs, the, the changing needs of today's young people, uh, the preoccupation with family, the preoccupation with flexibility. So there's ways of having a successful business model, but I would suggest that profitability is tied into loyalty. And loyalty is a two-way street. If you're loyal to your employees, they'll be loyal to you. If you show flexibility, they'll show flexibility. So it's all about finding the sweet spot. It can be done, um, but it's gonna take new thinking. It's gonna take a new commitment. It's gonna take a commitment to community, but more importantly, it's gonna take a commitment to people. And that's that is the only way that we'll be successful. And I think on that, I will say thank you very much. It's been a fascinating uh, conversation. And once again, uh, this series is meant to educate and inspire people. And uh, I think we've done both of that today. So thank you very much, Jerry. Pleasure is all mine, Paul. Thank you for your time. Take care. Thanks for listening to DNEXT. For more information about this episode or to listen to any of our other interviews, please visit us at dnextnow.com. Until next time.